Dr. Huntington and the Melonhead children. One of my all-time favorite things to do was have myself sit down in the screened-in back deck and sip a drink and enjoy the view. Summer, fall, winter, spring, any chance I got to get out there, I took it. I know that might not sound all that scintillating to you city folk, but there was nothing more relaxing for a country girl like me. Nothing more relaxing. After dinner was usually the best time. Finish the dishes, pour myself a big old glass of sweet tea or hot chocolate or if Daddy was feeling magnanimous, Irish coffee, and go on out there and have myself a nice long set. Much like everything else in the house, the back deck wasn't nothing to sneeze at. Daddy built it himself with a little help from old Blue, and, well, Daddy was a pot farmer and Blue owned the gun shop, and the deck reflected that lack of expertise. It might not have been the prettiest piece of architecture in the world, but it did what it was supposed to do, and that's all I needed. Summer was the best time for sitting. My favorite part was watching the sun fall behind the trees and listening as the swell of the cicadas merged with the sounds of the birds. Sometimes the moon might peek out from between some clouds. Sometimes dogs might bark way off in the distance. And sitting there, sipping on a drink with my legs tucked under me, everything seemed right with the world. And if it started the rain, watch out! Nothing was better for the soul than listening to a storm in my favorite chair. As soothing as it could be, my back deck setting sabbaticals wasn't without their spooky qualities. This was Spotsylvania County, after all. Many a gloaming I heard and saw things that I'm not sure were real or not. I'm not saying I'm crazy. I'm not. And I'm not some tinfoil hat-wearing nutter railing against fluoride in the water or screaming about Civil War ghosts or nothing. But in my short 17 years, it had been my experience that not everything in the world played by the rules. If the Hive and the Max and all them bugs that killed Timmy Carter were anything, they was proof of that statement. Hard proof. Hard as rock. I remember one time I was sitting out on the porch in the middle of August. I was splitting my time between working on the farm and summer swim team, both as a coach and a competitor. The Hive and Ruth Ann Hogg and her bone-cracking field hockey stick were still a year away. A heat wave had just broken up by the late afternoon thunderstorm that rolled through the countryside with a fury that rattled our windows and blew a few shingles off our roof. But now the heat and humidity had been replaced by a sweet summer breeze and temperatures that were relatively bearable. And by that, I mean it was only 94 degrees instead of 99 with a heat index of 110. The sun had nearly set, and I closed my eyes to see if I could catch the beginning of the night sounds. The swoosh of wind, the tweet of birds, the... What was that? I opened my eyes and leaned forward, certain I'd heard kids playing out in the woods. That by itself wasn't so weird. Kids played out in the woods all the time. Just not in our woods, because there wasn't no kids around where we lived. Hell, the edge of the nearest farm was two miles away, and it belonged to Mr. Boone. And Mr. Boone's house was two miles from that. Not to mention the fact that he was 83 years old and a permanent bachelor. There hadn't been children on his property in close to a 100 years. The rusty screen made it difficult to see into the darkening forest, which itself sat about a barn's length away. So I got up and opened the door hoping the sprawling of the spring wouldn't frighten away whoever, whatever, was out there. Then I stood on the back step, 
peering into the evening light. I didn't see nothing for a while, just the regular sprinkling of fireflies and the same old green canopy I've been looking at all my life. But I knew there was something out there, so I focused my attention and focused my attention, and everything seemed to go dim. The sounds of the bugs, the wind, until... There! I caught a glimpse of something bright yellow followed by a high-pitched laugh. Seconds later, I heard someone running around the leaves, cracking branches in another splash of color, this time neon blue. I hopped down the stairs. Who's out there? I scanned the tree line, cocking my head like that would help me hear better. It was surprising how fast the evening turned to dusk, and all of a sudden the peepers threw up their song and the cicadas swelled even louder. Then I heard it again. Footsteps crunching in the underbrush, the snap of a branch, a child giggling. I heard that! I ran into the woods for about half a football field until I stopped because it got dark really quick. Dark, dark. All I could see were the trees and brush right in front of me and some fireflies hovering a few feet away. Only they weren't hovering natural. That's to say chaotic-like. Usually fireflies chose their path in the same way a toddler destroys a clean room. Ain't no rhyme or reason to it. They want this way and that. But this was different. They were actually creating a pattern, circling around in the dark, making a figure eight, like one of them infinity symbols I saw in a textbook once when we were learning about world religions. I leaned forward. Hello? A rush of wind swooshed through the trees overhead, blowing the fireflies away. Then I heard nothing but cricket song. But there was something there. I could see it. A dark outline in the night. I held my breath and took another step. Hello? Two bright orbs flashed to life right in front of me. I screamed and jumped back, catching my foot on something and falling square on my behind. You might be laughing, but I swear if you'd been there, you would have done the same thing. I half expected the eyes would be gone when I got up, but they weren't. They were hovering in the dark, and I noticed how big they were. Who are you? I asked. The eyes blinked, and then a voice floated out of the bushes, high-pitched but coarse, like whoever it was got a sore throat by sucking on a helium balloon. Might have been a boy. Might have been a girl. Couldn't really tell. But for the sake of making it easier, I assumed she was a she. I am a harbinger, missus. I am a waif, a wanderer, a witch. See? A she. Huh. That's a lot to take on. Mrs. must not be here. Mrs. must not ever be here. Where? In the woods? This is my woods. That's my house right back. I turned to point it out, but all I could see was the dark outlines of the trees. Knocked me speechless. How far in had I gone? The eyes stayed put, staring at me, unblinking. Then whoever, whatever it was, whimpered. I looked down and saw a tiny foot caught in a badger trap. If you don't know what a badger trap is, good for you. Nobody in this world should have to experience them things. Daddy didn't have no problem with hunting. Of course he didn't. He was as avid an outdoorsman as anybody else in Spotsylvania County. But he hated traps. Called people who used them cowards. But Daddy, sometimes them badgers and coons got to be got rid of, don't you think? Not like that. Traps are nasty things. I'm all for controlling the animal population, Manda. But if you want to kill a creature, do it fast and do it yourself. Ain't no reason to make him suffer. I could see his point. Badger traps were like miniature bear traps, all metal and sharp teeth. This one had more teeth than most, too. Whenever Daddy found something caught in a trap like that, he let it go. Showed me how to do it, too. Just had to pull it open and reset the pin. And that's what I set out to do right then and there. I was down on one knee, inspecting it when the girl spoke. It hurts, missus. I know it hurts. 
That's some long, sharp teeth you got stuck in your foot. I reached out for it, and the girl tried to pull away, hissing. Don't, I said. You'll just make it worse. I reached for it again, and she flinched. You gonna let me set you free or what? More rustling sounds came from behind her, and she started to panic. Hurry, missus! Well, maybe if you stop moving. Hurry! He's coming! She shot a look behind her, and I took the opportunity to grab the trap. And once she felt that tug, she nearby lost her mind. She got to jerking and pulling so hard that it reminded me of a cat I once found tangled up in a laundry line. Traps like that were set on at least 90 pounds of pressure, so it wasn't no easy task to pry it loose. But that's what I had to do. Grab them teeth and pull them apart. The girl screamed and screamed, a high-pitched wail that sounded like a demon from hell. And then I got those teeth wide enough apart so she could pull her foot out, and she jerked away and fell on her backside. And did she thank me? Did she even take a second to look at her wounded foot? Nope. She stood up, hopped on her good leg, and said, He's here, missus! Flee! Flee! Flee and never come back! Then she skittered away, loping all lopsided off into the brush, followed by the sound of more children laughing, like there was a whole group of them out there, at least four or five. I waited a tick, wondering what had just happened, before I remembered what she said and decided to get out of there. But here's the thing. Even though I walked and walked, I never got any closer to the edge of the forest. In fact, it felt like I was going in the opposite direction. I even stopped a few times and looked around, worried that I got my head screwed on wrong. But I knew I hadn't. The Jet family had an inner compass that was as reliable as a tide's, and not one of us had ever gotten lost at any point in history, ever. At least that's what Daddy said. Because of this, I really wasn't scared all that much at first, but I definitely kept an even march forward, and I definitely didn't feel like looking behind me. I felt like I was running out of a dark basement in the middle of the night, and it got worse the longer I went on and realized that I still couldn't see my house. But then its outline slowly emerged from the gloom, the lights of the upstairs bedrooms glowing warm and yellow in the dark, and I picked up my pace until I was running, and I didn't stop until after I burst out of the tree line, neither. I'd almost reached the back deck when Daddy's disembodied voice floated out of the dark, saying, Kind of weird, ain't it? I'd never had a heart attack before, but two scares in a row like that felt pretty much as close to one that a teenage girl could get. I shrieked and hit the deck, which of course caused my Daddy to start laughing. I stood up and now that my eyes had adjusted, I could see him a little better. He was sitting in the middle of the backyard in a portable glider he built himself, a little red coal of a spliff hanging in between his fingers. Damn, Daddy! You scared the bejesus out of me! Don't say damn, Manda. Well, why the hell not? Because it's... He slapped a mosquito biting at his neck. Damn mosquitoes are eating me alive. What are you doing out here? Well, just sitting, having a smoke and a beer. I went over and sat down next to him. The cooler he used to pack his beer sitting between us on the slats. Can I have a drink? He thought for a second, then handed over his beer. I nearly fell off the glider. He'd give me a shot of bourbon in my coffee on cold nights, but asking for a beer and the answer was always no. Was this some kind of initiation I didn't know about? First I had to rescue a weird kid from a beaver trap in the forest and then I get to drink a beer? Whatever. Beggars and choosers and all. I took a sip, grimaced, and spit it out. Ugh! How do you drink that stuff? You get a taste for it. It's gross. Yeah, well... Can I have a smoke instead? Don't push your luck, little girl. I decided not to, choosing instead to just be with him and enjoy the company. The night sounds swelled around us, and every now and then the tip of his joint glowed in the dark. Daddy? Yeah. What were those things? What, them kids? Uh, yeah. I don't rightly know what they are. They've been here as long as I have. Longer, I think. At least that's what your nana told me. Really? Really. And you never chased after him or caught him? Oh, I chased him plenty. 
Me and your Uncle Zeus. Never caught him, though. Got close, but never caught him. Uncle Zeus said he talked to one once. Of course he did. Actually, I kind of believe him on this one. Oh. Did he talk to the one with the yellow shirt? Because I did. He shot me a look like he was impressed. Well, how about that? Well, he said he saw one once, but only for a little bit. Said it was too dark to see it all the way. All he could see was a big round head and glowing eyes. Did he see the infinity symbol? The what? Never mind. What'd they talk about? Zeus asked him, or she, or it, or whatever, where it lived. Said to live with its brothers and sisters with a man in the woods. Dr. Hunting down. That's it? Well, Zeus said he asked if he could see it, where it lived, and it laughed and hissed at him. Told him to never try to find them or he'd be sorry. Huh. Huh, that's right. Every time I walked through the woods behind my house, I thought of that story. The glowing eyes, the crazy laughter. I never did see or hear of him again after. No matter how many times I stood on the edge of the woods wishing they'd show up, no matter how many times I called out to him. I never was brave enough to set foot inside, though, at least not any time after four in the afternoon, and definitely not during the month of August. Or September. Or even early October, for that matter. waited a whole month before I set out to see if I could find Timmy Carter's body. You might be asking yourself, why a month? Well, because I was scared, that's why. I ain't afraid to admit it. I was scared of what was out there, scared of my reaction to it. In hindsight, I think that I'd had so much taken away from me that I couldn't believe that Timmy Carter was gone too. Because if he was dead, it was my fault. My fault entirely. I lost my cool. I blew my biscuits. Eventually, my need to find out what happened, to know for sure that he was dead, overrode the fear and the guilt, and I purged my yayas, screwed my dome tight, and decided to make it as right as I could. It didn't go well. The world had gotten strange and gotten stranger. For one, it had grown hotter, more humid. August in Virginia was already a riot of steamy mornings and stormy afternoons. I learned early on in my life that if I wanted to go swimming or have a nice picnic by the stream, it was morning or nothing. Sometimes even that didn't work out. But now it seemed like everything had turned positively subtropical, like the equator had widened significantly. Plants and bugs I'd never seen before, and not just the alien kind, neither, cropped up all over the place. It rained hot and heavy, seemingly out of the blue, and then cut off like someone had tweaked the spigot closed. Creepers snaked up the sides of abandoned houses, snakes slithered through the undergrowth, and I'll be goddamned if I didn't see a mosquito the size of a fist impale a rabbit one fine summer morning. And that's not even accounting for the sounds that percolated from the newfound brush. Hoots and hisses, caws and calls, all kinds of creepy music, the likes of which I never wanted to hear. Not live, at least. There were weird things out there, let me tell you. New weird things. Newer, weirder things than the previous newer, weirder things. Even though I'd lived my entire life in that area, and even though I'd traipsed through them woods a zillion times, 
it soon became apparent that I was lost. I blamed it on the climate. All my usual landmarks were difficult to pick out of the exotic foliage or covered or missing altogether. For example, my original plan was to march north for a mile before cutting over to Todd's Tavern using Mill Pond as a guide where I'd take a break and a bite before the next part of the journey. I left the property a little after sunrise and I figured I'd be there before mid-morning. But Mill Pond had been washed out in some areas, and in others it was overgrown with weeds and vines, and in other areas it was completely missing. I figured I must have walked for three hours, heading north and north and north, before I realized I was completely lost. I went through all the stages, denial, bargaining, etc. When the last stage hit, rather than freak out, I took me a seat on a log near a little creek and dug into my backpack for a can of ravioli. I was sitting there, munching and thinking, when I heard them for the second time in my life. First the sound of footsteps in the underbrush, then wild laughter. It was them crazy kids again. I guess they'd stepped up their game since the last time I saw them, because one of them threw a rock the size of a fist at me. Missed by a mile, crashed into the creek and sent up a nice-sized splash. But there wasn't no doubt about the meaning. The next one thudded at my feet. I put my can of ravioli down. You think that's funny? Skittering through the leaves, more laughter. They were all around me. I picked up a rock of my own, a nice brainer, and got to my feet. I swear to God, if one of you hits me, a rock slammed into my shoulder. Wasn't a huge one, but it was pointy, and whoever threw it had an arm like a piston because it hurt like a son of a bitch. Ow! Damn! Another rock hit me in the thigh, this one coming from the other direction. I saw one of them peeking out of the brush about 20 feet away, a big, round, fleshy head and a pair of yellow eyes. I wound up and fired, and it cut through the air like a meteor. I played softball every summer for five years. First string center field and backup pitcher. Weird combination, I know, but this was Spotsylvania County, after all. And sometimes we just didn't have the numbers. I didn't spend 15 hours a week practicing underhand lobs, you bet. More like 20 hours a week shooting bullets. That old melon-headed kid dropped on a spot with a shriek. Then he started crying something fierce, the baby. His brothers and sisters didn't take kindly to that. Rocks rained down on me from all directions, hitting me in the back, the head, the face, the legs. I covered up the best I could, but there wasn't nothing else to do but snatch up my bag and my gun and run. Wait a minute, you're thinking. You had a gun you didn't use it? What on earth? Well, of course I had a gun. I had more than one gun, actually. I had two hunting rifles and three handguns. But I wasn't going to use them on a bunch of creepy kids. They might have been weirdos and jerks, but they were still kids. And it wasn't like I had ammo to spare. If I was going to attack the girl, I'd need all the firepower I had. So I ran. Branches whipped me in the face, and I barked my shin on a fallen branch so hard that I could feel the bruise swelling as I limped along. Running with all them guns strapped to my back, not to mention what I'd loaded in my backpack, didn't make it any easier. Neither did the melon heads. They shadowed me, laughing and giggling and growling and throwing rocks every now and then, but never showing themselves, the cowards, until they did. One of them leaped out of the brush to my right, claws out, growling, and jumped up and latched onto my shoulder. I felt a searing pain as it bit into the muscle, and I screamed and rammed it into the trunk of an oak tree to my right. It whelped and fell to the ground, dazed. I only saw it for a second, but man, it was an ugly little thing. Its head was at least two-thirds of its body, and it was covered in pink and purple veins and patches of weedy hair. Its eyes were wide-set and red, and its mouth, while tiny, was filled with pearly teeth that had been sharpened to points. And where it got that Kmart t-shirt from, I have no idea, but it was dyed the brightest shade of red, redder than its eyes. It growled at me and gnashed its teeth, 
but when I drew my foot back to punt it, it dropped its tough guy act and skittered away into the bushes. You better run, you melon-headed freak! I screamed. Then I felt a prick on the back of my arm like I'd been stung by a bee, and when I wheeled around, a man was standing there. He was tall and thin, with perfectly combed salt and pepper hair and thick glasses perched on his face. He was wearing pressed black pants and shiny black shoes, and I could see a perfectly knotted black tie under his white lab coat. There was a name stitched on his left breast pocket, but I couldn't read it. My vision had gone blurry. Who are you? I managed to say. and then I was lying on an operating table. A bright light gleamed overhead, and I heard the beep and whir of machines all around. I tried to move, but my arms and legs were strapped down to the rails. My head was free, though, and when I looked down, I saw I was wearing a gown and slippers and nothing else. Hey! I yelled. I instantly regretted that decision. I'd only had a hangover once in my life. It happened the June before the hive landed. I'd gone to an end-of-the-year party and drank my fill, which isn't too much if I'm being honest. I spent the rest of the night puking up my guts in the woods and woke up the next day at home in bed. Daddy took one look at my rat's nest hair and pale face and bloodshot eyes and puke-stained shirt and laughed. That'll teach you, he said. It ain't funny. No, it ain't. Not for you, at least. I shuffled off to the bathroom to get cleaned up. You're grounded, of course, he called after me. As terrible as I felt that day and a little into the next, it paled in comparison to the way I felt waking up on that operating table. Joined to that was a fear of not knowing where I was or what had happened to me. In a moment, the swinging doors to the operating room pushed open, and two people backed in, the man from the woods and one of them melon heads. They turned around, and I saw they were dressed for surgery, masks and head coverings, smocks and latex. The melon head was holding a tray with scary-looking instruments on it. It set it down on a stand to my left, and the doctor leaned over me. Hello, my dear. His mask puffed out when he spoke. You're Dr. Hunting down, aren't you? My, my, my. Is that what they call me? Such provincial nonsense. The melon head bumped into one of the IV stands and spun around, panicked, knocking the tray of utensils over. They hit the floor with a metallic clatter, and the doctor got angry. Confound your clumsiness, Bertolt! Pick those up immediately! The melon head scrambled around, his pudgy fingers struggling to pick up the sleek, gleaming instruments. He dropped them over and over, cut his fingers on the blades. He kind of reminded me of a little baby. Now look what you've done, you idiot, Dr. Huntington said. Put them on the tray and take them back to be resanitized. Bertolt did as he was told, flashing a red look at me on the way out, like it was my fault he was a klutz. You must forgive poor dear Bertolt, my dear. He is a clumsy git sometimes, but I absolutely depend on him. My eyes rolled around, looking for a possible way out, all while my mind was screaming. What was going on? What was going to happen to me? The doctor picked a syringe off the tray behind him. It was filled with a thick-looking green liquid. We tested your blood earlier. You have such interesting cells. He flicked the plastic to pop the air bubbles. 
Mister, I said, I don't know who you are or what you want, but it'd be in your best interest to let me go. Oh, I doubt that very much. Then he jammed that needle into my arm and pushed the plunger all the way down, and that's all I knew again for a time. The next time I came around, I was dizzy and sick, and I could feel the stuff the doctor pumped into me running through my veins like sludge. I turned my head to the side and vomited. It was brown and green. Bert Holt was standing at the foot of the operating table, his red eyes fixed on mine. Go away, Bert Holt, I said. I don't have time to deal with your mess right now. I saw the edges of a smile creep up on his lips. Then he held the scalpel up and twirled it in his fingers. He leaped up onto the bed with an agility that I didn't expect from such a tiny oblong thing. His feet straddled me on either side and squatted down, that evil smile plastered across his face. I did the only thing I could think of. I hawked up a loogie and spit at him. I'm not going to tell you what he did with it out of fear you might puke, but I will say this. It didn't seem to bother him one bit. He liked it so much that he pointed the tip of the scalpel at my eye and slowly edged it forward. I turned my head and he hit me. And you might not think something so small could be so powerful, but he was. I saw stars. And when I turned my head the other way to avoid the knife again, he hit me again and again and again until I couldn't do nothing more than moan and spit blood. Then he put his hard little hand on my forehead and held it tight. Things were not looking good for this little girl, I could tell you that much. I never in a million years thought that this was the way I was going to die, get my eyeball carved out by a nasty little thing like Bert Holt. The scalpel snuck closer and closer, and Bert Holt's smile grew wider and wider. I closed my eyes, wondering if I'd feel any pain. The metal edge of the scalpel kissed my lid, and then there was a noise from the hall, a whoosh of air as the door swung open, and the weight of that evil little midget was suddenly off me. I opened my eyes and saw pudgy little fingers fumbling with the straps on my right. Bertolt's a vile little stump missus, a wicked creature, yes. I recognized that voice. It was the first one of them things I'd ever seen. The one that told me to steer clear of this place. You got that right, I said. Mrs. didn't heed my warning, did she? Mrs. made a bad mistake, but I doesn't forget. Mrs. free me, me free she. She undid the cuff of my right foot and then my left while I worked on my left hand. When I was free, I swung my legs off the operating table and, still feeling a little unsteady, hopped down and almost landed on Bertholdt, who was passed out on the floor. Your clothes, Mrs. The melonhead girl was handing them to me, my jeans and my shirt, my socks and my boots. You know where my bag is? A noise came from the hallway and she said, He's here! He's here! Mrs. must flee! She must flee and never return! What? Where? Now! And she shoved me at the double doors and I burst out the other side and into the field behind what used to be my house. It was night and the insects were singing their song. The moon was out, full and bright, and the air was hot and heavy. I didn't even turn around to see where I'd come from. I walked straight to where I was camping in the foundation, sat down in the corner and drew my knees up to my chest and rocked back and forth, back and forth. I can't tell you how long I sat there. Could have been an hour, could have been a few days. The sun was out and then it wasn't. I got hot and I got cold. It rained. Not once did I think to eat. I seen things and I heard things. I don't know if they was real or not. Sometimes I thought they might be, but then the sounds were unlike anything I knew. Strange animals sniffed around the foundation. I saw a hawk with a dog's head snatch a rabbit with a snake's tail sitting in the grass on the edge of the woods. And those things, those melon heads, I heard them running out there. I saw their eyes in the night. 
When they came too near, I screamed at them, holding the only weapon I had left, an old butter knife, out in front of me like it was some kind of sword. My eyes wide and terrified, and they scattered, giggling, and ran back to the woods. And I saw all the people I loved or knew who had died. I saw Timmy Carter. I saw Ray. I saw Maggie May. I saw Zeus. And last of all, I saw Daddy. He was standing at the other end of the foundation, looking at me. Daddy, is that you? Amanda, honey, you need to get out of here. I don't want to. I want to go with you. You can't come with me, baby. I'm gone. I miss you, Daddy. I know. Don't you love me? You know I do. Then why can't I come with you? Because you're needed here. You need help. Help who? Well, everybody else, of course. But I can't do it. Yes, you can. I can't do it. That crazy doctor shot me full of something evil. I think I'm dying. You're not dying, Amanda. But it hurts, Daddy. I mean, it really hurts. I know it does, Amanda. But people need you. You need to wake up, Amanda. Amanda, wake up! My head rocked back and my cheeks stung like someone had slapped me. Everything was blurry at first, but then I saw the tarp me and Timmy Carter put up over the foundation, blue and tattered, just like we left it. And there was a little stone grill we made to heat up our food. I sat up, wondering who'd slap me awake, and Lord Almighty was I surprised. Not exactly happy, I gotta admit, but surprised and, well, maybe a little relieved. Hey, hey, thank you for tuning into the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories. And if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from the Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic. And I will see you guys next week.